you would open your Bible to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew 22, and we will be studying today verses 23 through 33. Hear the word of the living God. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. They asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died. Having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. The resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. May our hearts as well astonish at our Christ, our Savior, the word of the living God. Write its truth in our hearts. Pray once again. Father, we come to you, word, we long to see Jesus clearly. We are amazed by him, we are astonished at who he is and what he's done. Pray that today by hearing his amazing words, his clear teaching, this incredible response to a trick question. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would, having eyes fixed on Jesus, each and every one of us, Lord, would be encouraged and strengthened, given hope that is renewed once again today. Pray this in Jesus' name. And please be seated. Keep your Bibles open there as we go through our text this morning. He just sang... uh, Answering our own questions. (laughs) Is he worthy? Is all creation groaning? And as we have sung the song, it really is a song that speaks of hope. Picture comes from Revelation where the apostle John is... um, in the throne room of God, he's looking around at these scrolls and he asks the question, is anyone worthy of opening the scroll? And he gets disappointed because he's looking and seeing no one and then he sees the Lamb of God, the one who took away the sins of the world and he is worthy to open the scroll. And that's the same Jesus here that's standing in front of these religious leaders in Jerusalem, 
We're in Passion Week in our, in our uh, time period here in Matthew. And really this, this text is going to point us to some things. It's going to answer some questions that maybe we are curious about. It, you know, I think everybody wonders about after death what, what's happening on the other side and what is it going to be like. And he, he does answer some of those questions, but it's, it's even so much more profound and deeper than that because it, he's going to give us the thing that, that we need desperately in a very dark world. We live on planet death. We live on a place that is incredibly beautiful and incredibly brutal at the same time. And when, when, when we don't have hope in front of us clearly, when we lose sight of hope, we get discouraged, we get downcast, our souls are in the dirt and in the dust, and so, so easy for us to give up, so easy for us to, to, to not be encouraged, to be discouraged. Is there anything we need more on planet death than hope? Think of, think of death itself, right? It's, it's not a pretty thing. It's a, it's a horrible thing. Every one of us has been affected by it in some way. Death is horrible. And if, if it were not for hope, where would we end up? Where would we be? And so that's what ultimately this passage is all about. It's, it's about hope. It's about the reason Jesus came. It's what Jesus understands about why he's there and what he's accomplishing in this week of the Passion. He's come into the city of Jerusalem, welcomed by crowds. I believe this next Sunday, a week from today, we'll be celebrating Palm Sunday, the time of, of this Hosanna, praise be to God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he goes into the temple and and he sees the horrible things that are going on there by God's people. He overturns the tables and he blasts them, right? And he's now on this, uh, on this middle of this conflict with the religious leaders. Last week it was the Pharisees that sent some of their disciples, some of their students to question him and try to trick him in his words. And today now after the Pharisees, Pharisees failed that test, the Sadducees are now about to try their hand. So we're going to go through this text together, and then we're going to close with three applications for us today. It says in verse 23, the same day, the Sadducees came to him. The Sadducees, who's that? A group of religious leaders. They were part of the ruling class. They were definitely a minority among of the, the different religious leaders of that time. There were the Pharisees, there were the scribes, there were the Sadducees. The Sadducees primarily were, were the priests of the temple. They were pro-Rome because they had wealth and power. They did not want to lose their station of wealth and power. And so um, the one thing that, that they uh, could unite with the Pharisees on is their hatred of Jesus. Jesus comes in disrupting the whole system. They're not happy about it either. And so they come to Jesus to try to ask him a question. It says on that same day. And it tells us about them that they are the ones who say that there's no resurrection. So the, the uh, Sadducees are going to ask a question designed to make 
the, the idea of the resurrection look ridiculous. By resurrection, it's talking about the fact that there is life after death. That God would raise the physical mortal bodies of those who have died and have been buried into the ground. One day, raise them up in new bodies, recreating them. They thought it was foolish. They thought it was ridiculous. They were the kind of like the modern-day liberal theologians. Those who would read the Bible and, you know, read the story, for instance, of Jonah and, and just kind of scoff. And how crazy and ridiculous is it to think that some guy would be swallowed by a fish? Of course, Jesus didn't really turn water into wine. Of course, Lazarus wasn't really dead. They were anti-supernaturalistic. They despised the miracles. And like many today, they also didn't accept the full word of God. They only believed in and followed the first five books of Moses, the, the Torah or the Pentateuch. And they disregarded whatever was written in those first five books of the Bible whenever it seemed good for them to do so. So they could chop up their Bibles, they could mark things up based on their worldview and based on the way that say they saw things, and one of the biggest things that they understood was there is no supernatural. Their religiosity was much more political in their day. It allowed them a status and a position. And so the same day, it says, the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. What he's talking about there is what's known as leveret marriage. It's, it's coming from Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 and 6. It's something that's a bit foreign to our culture but understanding that the, the time of the Old Testament where for the Jews, pe Jewish people at that time, it was everything was all about family and land. There was also protection that was needed for a woman who was a widow. There was no social system. When she was put into another family in marriage, she wasn't going back to her old family. And so if her husband dies, she's literally left abandoned, unprotected, destitute. And so God put certain things into the law, and one of them, in order to maintain and protect the, the widow, but also in order to maintain and protect the family name and the family line and the land itself that would be passed on. This law was put in place in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So what was happening there was, again, there was a system set up to where she would be married to her brother-in-law. It's, the, it's the, where we get the word leveret marriage from. It means brother-in-law in Latin. And, and so there was this idea that if, if a, 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 a man marries a wife and then he dies, that man's posterity is still going to be in place. If he had no children, 
his brother was to marry the wife and they were to have children. And that children, though, would not be, in essence, legally under the brother. It would be legally under the dead brother. Does that make sense? So that's what's going on here. And again, it might sound foreign to us, and a lot of you ladies are like, thank God I don't live in that time. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it sounds crazy to us today. But it really was a way that God was protecting. Protecting the inheritance and the land and the family, and it really allowed the dead man's legacy to keep going on. So that's what's happening, and, and that is part of the law. And so this is part of the law that the Sadducees certainly believe in and follow. And so because of that, they come up with this story. They say, okay, Jesus, you know that about Moses. Moses told us this, that if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So here's the story, Jesus. There were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. Marries brother number two. And so too, the second He dies, so she marries brother number three, and then he dies, and she marries brother number four, which, by the way, now you start beginning to see, this is all made up, because by the time the fourth and fifth brothers come along, it's like, I ain't touching that. (laughs) We ain't going there. It's a hypothetical. They're making up a story to try to, which is is ridiculous, to try to, to trick Jesus So they say all the way through seven brothers, all seven of them marry her, and then he dies. The seventh one dies. And so at the end, after them all, the woman dies. So they're all dead now, right? In the resurrection, Jesus, (laughs) whose wife will she be? It almost has the essence of a college professor who's atheistic and hates you know, God and the, the, the idea of God that's standing in front of his classroom and posing this question like, can God, snicker, snicker, can God make a rock so big that he can't even lift it himself? Ha, gotcha. Come on, you theists, you Christians, answer that one. So that's, that's kind of the, the mocking attitude that they're having here. She marries all seven of them, and now she's dead. In the resurrection, Jesus, whose wife will she be? So it's a ridiculous question, and yet Jesus legitimately is going to answer it. He's not going to necessarily respond with ridicule. He's actually going to respond to the question, he's going to give us a couple of really profound things for us to consider. So in verse 29, Jesus answers them and says, you're so stupid. He doesn't say that. That's the Brian paraphrase version. But that's kind of what I think was coming out in this whole response. You guys are ridiculous. He says, you are wrong. You're mistaken. You've deceived yourselves, and you're wrong for two reasons, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Two things you don't know. You don't know the Bible, and you don't know God's power. You see, the Sadducees connect their thoughts to a, to a Bible passage, certainly, 
But Jesus is letting him know, but you don't understand how to understand that passage correctly. Here you are, highly trained men, and yet you're mistaken in your basic understanding of biblical truth. You don't know the storyline of the Bible, and you don't know the power of God. He responds first by explaining how they don't know the power of God. It says in verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And that's an interesting thought that he responds to because the Sadducees deny supernatural truths even the existence of angels themselves, and yet Jesus responds with a truth about angels, which is helpful for us to even hear that and understand because we live in a day and age of a lot of anti-supernaturalism, right? People will mock and scoff at, oh, you, you, you Christians that believe these things. And then we'll try to do like spiritual gymnastics to somehow talk about God in a way that's not supernaturalistic so that the, the, the man or the woman that we're talking to will understand what we're saying and think we're really smart. And the truth is, we don't need to do that. We can just give them Bible. We can just give them truth. And let, let God do his work through his word. You don't need to come up with with extra-biblical arguments to try to prove God or just give the Word of God to people and let God deal with it. I love what Charles Spurgeon said when he talked about the Scriptures and defending the Bible. He, he was asked one time about how do you, you, know, do you, do you need, how do you defend the Bible? And he says, defend the Bible? <laughs> I don't need to defend the Bible. The Bible's like a lion. How do you defend a lion? You don't. You just open up the cage and let him go to work. <laughs> Let him defend himself. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's taking these anti-supernaturalistic people, and he's just giving them truth. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now notice, he he doesn't say they are angels in heaven, which that's something sometimes we need to correct our our understanding of, because, you know, we get all sentimental and such at funerals, right? Just somebody passes away, and how many times have you been to a funeral, and they're like, oh, God got one more angel. No, he didn't. <laughs> You're not going to have wings, all right? You're not going to turn into an angel. You're going to be a human being, fully human being. So it's not that we become angels but he, he's using the angelic to say, this is, way, this is the way life is going to be like in the afterlife. What is it going to be like? What, how are we going to be like angels? He says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, again, that's the question at hand here. Pointing us back to Deuteronomy and the whole idea of leveret marriage, he's saying, you don't understand. Your, your ill whole illustration is wrong. Your story's wrong because you're, you're thinking that life is, in, in the afterlife, in, in glory, is going to be exactly the same as life is here on earth, in the here and now, and it's not. There's a difference. Yes, there's some continuity, but there's major discontinuity to the future. He, he says that they're going to be, they won't marry nor are they going to be given in marriage. So in order to to actually be precise, what he's actually saying is there's going to be no more weddings. Not that marriage necessarily will cease. There is going to be marriage because Christ has a bride. 
But the marriage is going to be between Christ and his people, Christ and, and his bride. So what he's talking about in, in our future, dealing with us as, as people, as human beings, he's talking about in, in, the, in the end of time, in, the, in glory, there's going to be no more weddings, and that implies there's going to be no marriage between husbands and wife like on earth. Again, he says you're going to be more like the angels, which doesn't mean we're going to be disembodied. We know angels are spirit, although they take on different forms. They've seen them in Scripture that angels can take human form. We see the angels being extra radiant and shining. We also see angels invisible in Scripture. But when he's talking about being like that, it's not talking about being disembodied. It's not talking about being sexless in the sense of male and female. Since the passage affirms that angels do not marry and implies no reproduction, what Jesus is basically laying out is that that humans will likewise do neither in the resurrection. The resurrection. Now, the whole idea of the resurrection is something that, that Jesus is deeply passionate about. It's something that he has talked about often in this, in, throughout the Gospels. In Matthew 19, for instance, he, he says in verse 28, truly I say to you, to the disciples, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What an incredible future was was in front of these 12 apostles here, disciples who became apostles, but the focus here I want us to consider is this new world Jesus is talking about. When he speaks of the regeneration, he's speaking of this new world. The Greek is palingenesia. It's a compound Greek word. It means palin, it means again, and genesia is the, the word we get our English word genesis from. It's it's an idea of a new creation, a new genesis, a re-genesis. Jesus talked in other language that was similar in in, uh, John chapter 3. Remember when he was talking to the Pharisee Nicodemus who came and asked him questions, and Jesus told them, you're not going to see the kingdom of God unless you are born, what? Again. Unless you're reborn, and Nicodemus wasn't understanding that. He's like, how, how do you, how's that happen? How do you go back into my mother's womb? How in the world do we deal with such situations? Jesus is giving us tastes of what's so hard for us to grasp or understand. This is Jesus' mindset, though, is there is a resurrection, there is a regeneration, there is a, a new world coming. That's actually why I'm here. That's my purpose. That's what it's heading towards. That's where I'm bringing everything. I've come into this dark, messed up place where you all, because of sin, have ruined everything. And I'm coming to give my life in order to make it all new again. And the concept isn't like we talked about in our worldview series, understanding disembodied future. The concept is a bodily future, just as Christ himself, when he died on the cross and rose from the dead, rose with a body. It was a glorified body. It was a different body. 
It was a body that could walk through walls and do these amazing things, but it was a body nonetheless. That's why he said, reach out, touch my hands. Put, put Thomas, put your, your hand in my side and feel me. I'm flesh and blood. After he had risen from the dead, he, he ate breakfast with them. Look at me, I'm not some ethereal spirit floating around. I'm real flesh and blood. Scripture tells us that Christ himself is the first fruits with his glorified body. That means he's the first plant that grew up of many plants that are coming. That's what's ahead for the Christian. That's what's ahead for me and you in Christ. Oh, how beautiful it is. Hope of the new creation. Not floating around in, 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 in heaven, you know, on clouds playing harps but a real existence in a real new body, a renewed creation on a renewed earth. That's the end. Those of our loved ones who've gone before us right now, who are disembodied at the current time, in the intermediate state, they're not done. They've not reached their finality. They're going to get it when we get ours. There's a day coming when everything, all creation, as it's groaning, according to Romans 8, will be renewed. And Jesus is, is, is bringing this hope. Yes, when God regenerates and perfects creation, there's going to be a measure of continuity with this life. We know, for instance, there's going to be music and praise to God. We see that in Revelation. We know there's going to be Food as we eat in a great banquet with our Lord and we feast with him. People are going to be freed, fully liberated, fully satisfied, fully well rested. What hope we have. And Jesus is telling the Sadducees how you're wrong because you don't believe that the God who has the power to recreate or to create has the same power to recreate. The God that made it in the beginning is the God that's going to remake it even better than you can ever imagine in the end. You thought Eden was great. You thought that garden was amazing. You don't even understand the new Eden that God is going to bring, which Revelation speaks of as a city, not just a garden, a garden city. It's amazing what's ahead of us. You don't know the power of God, Jesus says. In verse 31, he goes on and says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? Remember, he already told them, you don't know the scriptures. And now he asks them, priests, leaders, <laughs> these guys who supposedly are very well instructed in the Bible, haven't you read? Haven't you ever read the Bible? Wait a minute, and you guys, wait, you don't believe in, in Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all that. You only believe the first five books. So, so let's talk about something in the first five books. Let's study something you say that you believe, Sadducees. Haven't you read what was said to you by God? He quotes here, he quotes from Exodus I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not 
God of the dead, but of the living. Pretty amazing. Jesus is proving his point on the tense of a verb. Not I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac. Moses wrote this again a long time ago, and he's quoting again from Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. You, remember, you might remember the story where uh, Moses is, has fled from Egypt. They've been, the people of Israel are in slavery there, and Moses runs away because he murdered somebody. And he's out in the desert, and he's, he's living his life, his new life now, and all of a sudden, God appears to him in a burning bush. And in that burning bush, God announces who he is. Now get this. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are long dead. And yet, God announces himself with these words, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus takes this amazing statement of who God is, and he says he is not God of the dead, but of the living. See, you don't know your Bibles because you've never read this and understood it the way God wants you to read it and understand it. You don't know the scriptures. Do you know it's, it's actually very possible for a person to have a whole lot of Bible knowledge and yet not fundamentally know the scriptures? You can know a whole lot about the Bible. You can quote it back and forth and up and down and not know anything about it. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Clearly telling us and suggesting to us that, that biblical truth has a pattern to it, and it's a pattern that can be detected by the discerning and wise heart, by the regenerated heart. And in the, the whole of the Bible, as we read the whole of the Bible, there's a sense, a certain a givenness, if you will, to the Bible's message. It has a storyline, <coughs> and it's needful for us to understand the whole story. When we read the Old Testament, it's not just a bunch of moralistic stories that God tells in us in order to learn how to be better people. He's giving the whole story. We, 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 you kind of know the storyline now, don't you? You remember the storyline in three words? Creation, fall, redemption. Very good, William. Thank you. Creation, fall, and redemption. That's the storyline of the Bible, and as you open your Bibles, no matter where you're at in it, you can see that story in there. Jesus is saying, you guys don't get it. You don't understand the story. You don't know the pattern. And your teaching either conforms to the scriptural pattern or it departs from the scriptural pattern. It also suggests to us in Paul's instruction to Timothy here, that's, that we can, someone can actually lose that pattern. That's why he says you need to follow it, stick to it, get off on your own speculations, understand what the Bible is saying. Sadducees had a lot of Bible knowledge, but they didn't follow the pattern of sound words, of sound doctrine, and, and many people today are like them in that respect. Jesus wants them to know from the scriptures there is a resurrection of the just. He's talked about it over and over again. 
I, I, he, he could have talked to them about Isaiah. He could have quoted from Isaiah about your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, the earth will give birth to the dead. He could have talked about Job and quoted from Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And he would have been totally right. But the Sadducees miss all of that because they deny the authority of the scriptures as a whole. They say they follow the authority of the Pentateuch, but Jesus is proving to them you misread that too. And that's the question, have you not read? He's rebuking careless Bible reading, not lack of reading, not lack of study, careless study. So Jesus corrects them by plumbing the depths of Exodus 3.6 from, again, from the authority that they say they believe. And in that, he locates the proof that God, in his faithfulness, did not let the patriarchs die. He says, I'm, I am, not I was, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And if the Lord is Abraham's God, then Abraham is alive and God preserves believers beyond the decades of this first life, and he continually keeps all of his promises to them. In quoting this passage to the Sadducees, Jesus is also reminding them whom they claim to serve. You claim to serve the God of Abraham. Yet you don't believe the supernatural, but you claim to be a child of Abraham. The very reason why you even can claim that is because God did a supernatural work from Abraham's basically dead body and Sarah's dead womb. He gave Abraham a seed. He very literally raised up a seed to Abraham from Abraham's dead body in essence. And in denying the resurrection, the, Sar the, the Sadducees then are denying their very confession, the confession that they're children of Abraham. It's also helpful for us to understand the context. Why is Jesus quoting this among everything else he could have quoted? Why you go back to Exodus 3? Because this was Yahweh's first revelation to Moses at the burning bush. And it was that revelation to Moses in which he promised, God promises that he's heading down to Egypt. For what? To rescue my people from slavery. To deliver them from slavery. The God of Israel is a God who brings his people out of slavery. And just in the same way that they deny that he brings life from death, Jesus is saying, I'm conquering death. I'm about to go to death in order to conquer death for my people that they might live because I am the God of the living. When the crowd heard it, verse 33, they hear this masterful sermon in just a few sentences from Jesus, and it says they were astonished at his teaching. He'd done it again. Jesus had outwitted the Sadducees. In Luke, Luke's gospel, in, in Luke chapter 20, it gives the same story as we're reading here in Matthew from a little different perspective, and Luke reports that some of the scribes even Look at Jesus and say, teacher, you have spoken well. 
But it's helpful for us to realize that neither astonishment nor some quick compliments count as faith. You can be amazed at Jesus all you want, but if you don't trust, deceived your own self, or not his. This passage conveys some incredible truth. We see in this short passage that the Lord is eternally God of his people. He knows them forever. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. We also see the credible hope that we have as those with faith in Christ alone that He grants believers life after death. And it's a life that, that manifests both a continuity and an amazing discontinuity with this current life. It certainly does raise questions. It raises questions in my mind when he appears, Jesus appears here to announce the end of marriage. Like, what is going on there? What's that all about? I remember reading this when I was a young single man and getting scared, getting a little nervous, like, Lord, I, I hope, don't take me out or don't come back before I get to get married. Like, I really want to be married, right? That's, that's like the ultimate. Lord, I want to experience that. And now I'm really bummed because if, if, if I don't get to get married, and then I'm not married forever, as if that's some kind of worse existence. May I remind you, Jesus himself never married. <laughs> we can also get concerned about understanding the, all that comes with marriage, including marital intimacy and such, and, and, and especially in a sex-crazed society that we live in, and, and, and a lot of people start freaking out about, well, is that going to be, you know, do we have that in heaven or what? I want you to think about it, this. Number one, An amazing thing that Jesus is pointing to here in eternity, because it seems that marriage ends not because intimate relationships cease, but because they proliferate. Right? Human beings on planet death in our current state prior to the great new world that God is going to recreate one day, right now in our day and age, we are prone to betray, to, to mishandle secrets and, and intimate things. That, that, you know, our trust is regularly broken. We don't know who to trust. We have a difficult time. Can I actually open up and be myself to you? And if I tell you my secret thoughts or my secret struggles, can I trust you with them? Certainly, because broken trust is too common, it's wise to be wary and discerning. But think about this. When sin is gone, when sin is dead, finally dead, all relationships become safe. 
single one. Peter Kreeft, commenting on this passage, says, In heaven, we share each other's secrets without shame and voluntarily. In the communion of saints, promiscuity of spirit is a virtue. An amazing thing to think about. And this would be why, why marriage ends. There's no more procreation needed because there's no more death. There's no more need for marital intimacy because there's going to be such better and higher and greater and deeper forms of union. Better ways to express love, higher pleasures, even if we can't imagine that right now. But think about it. Think, think about days in your history where you couldn't imagine even life today. Put up that slide with those pictures. I saw this. Pastor, you'll talk about this illustration. It's really helpful. You all have seen this before, right? What's this? Some of you all got one of these in your belly right now. <laughs> this is some of the stages of human development. This is an amazing thing, right, of how, what God does with the union of, of, of two people, and out of that, all of a sudden, you got this little, little tiny, tiny thing. This is a nine-week-old. They say it's like the size of a little bean, right? Just tiny, tiny. Guess what? Each and every one of you used to look like that. <laughs> Can you believe it? You used to look like that. When you look like that, could you even imagine what you would look like now? <laughs> or how about, do you remember, how many remember the very first breath you took? Lying if you raised your hand, so thank you for not raising it. But you probably did something when you took your first breath. When did you take your first breath? When you were born, right? Which is an amazing thing. Think about it. Because this is the, the lungs begin to develop in a, in a baby at 24 weeks. And I, and, I, and I understand it's like 36 weeks or so that they're fully developed. So you got lungs. Who's pregnant right now? Hannah, you're pregnant. Your, your little baby's got lungs growing, right? But that little baby is not using those lungs, which is a whole another amazing thing, because that, that little, he's breathing through your umbilical cord, getting oxygen. That's how they grow, right? And so that baby's going to be born. That baby's going to come out, and, and, and that baby's going to go, ah! <laughs> Partly because what in the world is going on? I was just in this world where everything was warm and tight and I could just curl up and kick and I got fed. It just came in automatically. It was amazing. And now what's going on? My arms can go like this. And my legs are on. What's going on? You see, when you were... Nine weeks or 24 weeks or 28 weeks or even 40 weeks, you couldn't imagine what life would be like if you could breathe. You couldn't imagine what life would be like sitting where you are today. And in a similar way, 
There's things ahead for us physically, in our bodies, in our world, in our future. There's things ahead for us that that are so beautiful and glorious and amazing, you can't even begin to comprehend the reality of it. But it's coming. What about other pleasures? Like, is baseball going to be in the new world? Or canoeing? Or ice cream? Or guacamole? I sure hope so. (laughs) New inventions, new music. Will we sleep? Will we have competition, not from compulsion, but from delight? Is there going to be sports and games? And listen, all of that, great questions. And if God wills them for our good and his glory, then sure, why not? But if not, think of your highest pleasure on earth right now. Think of your greatest delight. Mine's probably, I don't know, food, right? Think of food. Think of eating your most incredible, exquisite meal. You can't even imagine what food is going to be like. Any pleasure that you have on this earth right now, that you're even wondering, including marriage, including relational intimacy, all of that, anything you're wondering, that it, 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 if, is it going to be in the future or not? If not, you're not going to miss it because there will be such higher joys. No sense of grief, no loss, fully satisfied in the new creation. Fully experienced, not so much as a reward, but as home. Our new home that God has created for us. No eye has seen or the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those. So how do we respond? Three things real quick. Hope is found only, number one, hope is found only in the living God. That's one of our applications. Oh, how we need hope. Are you in a dark day? Are you in a day of tears? And if you're not now, that day's coming. It's right around the corner. I hate to say it, but it is. It's coming around the corner. You'll experience pain and loss and suffering. The living God, who is the God of the living, the only place that you find hope. Biblical hope is not wish upon a star. Biblical hope is as as sure and solid as anything else. Actually, more so. Biblical hope is is the kind of hope that if I I heard a story once of a POW in Vietnam whose wife got a call from the President of the United States one day and she Ma'am, you just freed your husband. He's on a plane. He'll be landing seven hours. Go meet him. The highest authority in the land giving the most sure future for her. It was just a matter of time. God 
Calvin said these words, As no man can be a father without children, nor a king without a people, so strictly speaking, the Lord cannot be called God of any but the living. will live forever. Ultimately, what Jesus is doing in this passage, he's making a point about God, wanting us to know things about God. What kind of God does, does Israel serve? What kind of God is God? Is he a God who binds himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but lets that bond go when death comes? Is he a God who's limited by the grave, whose faithfulness goes that far and no further? Or is he a God who's faithful unto death and yet faithful again and again and again and again? He is not a God who would go to mortals and say that he's binding himself to them, but never deal with the greatest obstacle to their final happiness, which is death. That's why Jesus is here. The Sadducees don't understand the power of God. They don't understand the faithfulness of God. But Jesus is standing in front of them as the Savior of the world who in just a few days from this time period is going to go to the cross and conquer death by conquering sin. Thus we have the hope, the living hope of 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice. This is your future. This is God's word. This is what you have and who you are, Christian. However, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that it is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is hope. This is what we have in Christ. Yes, you're going to suffer for a little while. If it's not today, like I said, it's coming tomorrow. But Christ has conquered. Lord is our God. He is your living hope. Secondly, hope will be fulfilled by the power of God. Hope will be fulfilled by the power of God. There's a day coming when hope's no longer going to be needed. Oh, we need it today. I need it today. I had a couple rough days this past week. I needed hope. I needed, I needed the truth of God. I needed to understand that there's a day coming where I'm not going to be suffering anymore. Hope will be fulfilled by the power of God. John 5:25. truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. If the greatest thing 
the greatest bad, evil, horrible thing that can happen to you is death. This verse changes everything. Hope will be fulfilled by the power of God if you believe it. And thirdly, hope is secured by the word of God. If we knew the power of God, we would know that God is able to raise the dead. But if we know the scriptures, we know that God will raise the dead. That's where it's going. That hope is not secured by me or you. It's not secured by our good works. It's not secured by anything but the word of God himself. He made a promise. He sealed that promise with an oath, swearing by his own self, because there's nothing greater to swear by. Folks, friends, others of Take it to the bank. Because we have a living hope and a living word. Remember this week when you're suffering, struggling. Remember the words of the psalmist who said these words, why are you cast down? Ever been there? Cast down, just beaten up, tears flowing, heart aching, wondering how long is it going to wondering is this pain ever going to leave? Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? answers his own question with an encouragement. Hope, for I shall again salvation. Our hope unshakable, unstoppable, Hope. Hope you have in Christ. Encourage your heart and soul today. Lift you to new heights. Knowing what's knowing your future. Trusting in scriptures are going to continue here. Coming weeks we're going to Story, Passion Week, to come to the cross, he, Son of God, suffering, not going to stay dead, is he? Great is it that we know the end. He's going to rise from the He's going to appear disciples. He's going to appear to hundreds of people going to ascend to heaven where he right now rules and reigns. Listen. Seeding for you. Praying for you. Your faith may not.